1: This is a CBC Podcast. Jail is difficult at the best of times. The correctional system can be an unforgiving place, though, if you have a mental illness. In 2016, Solomon Fakiri was being held at the Central East Correctional Centre in Lindsay, Ontario, awaiting trial. The 30-year-old lived with schizophrenia and was also awaiting transfer to a mental health facility. Eleven days after he went into custody, he died in a violent confrontation with guards. In the seven years since his death, his family has been searching for answers on how and why he died. And advocates have been raising the alarm about the treatment of the mentally ill in the justice system. An inquest into Solomon Fakiri's death is now underway. CBC reporter Shanifa Nasser has been covering this story since 2016. Shanifa, good morning.
2: Good morning, Matt. Thanks for having
1: me. Thanks for being here. Who was Solomon Fakiri?
2: Yeah, Solomon was born in Afghanistan in 1986, he was the second of five children, and the family came to Canada when he was eight uh, and settled in Pickering, east of Toronto. We know from his family that he was a straight-A student, captain of his high school football team, and, and really always put his family first. Um, when he graduated, his future looked bright. In 2005, he enrolled at the University of Waterloo, where he was studying environmental engineering. But his plans were cut short after a car crash when he was 19. Uh, Not long after, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And from that point on, his life really took a turn for the worst. You know, he couldn't continue with school. He would go days without sleeping. He started having run-ins with the law and being picked up under Ontario's Mental Health Act. And when he wasn't taking his medications consistently, his condition really began deteriorating.
1: Why was he being held in the Central East Correctional Centre in 2016?
2: So, leading up to his arrest, Solomon was really struggling. He was on and off his medications, so his behavior wasn't predictable. And his family was also struggling, really trying to get him the help that he needed. In December 2016, Solomon allegedly stabbed a neighbor during a dispute. So, he was arrested, charged, and he spent that night in a police station. Now, we've reached out to Durham Regional Police about how they handle incidents where people have a mental health issue. They've never spoken with us about the case, but, you know, could he have been taken to a treatment center instead of a jail? That's one of the questions that's being looked at during the inquest. The day after his arrest, Solomon was taken to, to Lindsay Jail, where his condition worsened. And at no point during his stay there was he taken to a hospital, seen by a psychiatrist, nor was his family allowed to see him because he was deemed too unwell.
1: At the heart of this inquest um, are the actions that led up to Solomon Fakiri's death. And it's really difficult for the family to have to go through this, and and some of the information is really hard to hear. What do we know about what happened that led to his death?
2: So we know Solomon died after being beaten, pepper sprayed, and shackled face down on the floor of a segregation cell. Leading up to his death, a group of six guards was moving Solomon from a shower area to a new cell at the end of a long hallway— And in the showers, guards said Solomon was spraying them with shampoo and water. We also know guards were reluctant to move him in his condition, and some wanted a specialized crisis team involved. But that didn't happen, and Solomon had been successfully moved without that kind of a team before. This time, as guards were moving him, a manager alleged that Solomon spit at him. That manager then took a swing at Solomon, and things really escalated from there. He was pepper sprayed, pushed into the cell where he was put down on the ground, and as we've heard at the inquest, he was repeatedly struck, punched in the head, pepper sprayed again, covered with a spit hood, and he died on the cell floor. And one of the jail staff later said in court filings that the combination of those actions was, quote, a triple threat for asphyxia or, or essentially cutting off his air supply. And we've also heard that some of the actions that day did, in fact, violate use of force policies.
1: What was the explanation? I mean, part of this is is in the details that you've just given. But at that time, what was the explanation um, for, for Solomon Fakiri's death?
2: Yeah, initially his cause of death was deemed unascertained, essentially meaning that it couldn't be determined. So that was in 2017. But in 2021, Ontario's coroner's office announced a review into his death in light of new evidence. Following that review, Chief Pathologist Dr. Michael Planet determined Solomon's official cause of death was, quote, prone position restraint and musculocutaneous injuries sustained during struggle, exertion, and pepper spray exposure in a person with an enlarged heart and worsening schizophrenia. So in other words, Solomon's death was the result of being held face down on his stomach and the injuries that he suffered being restrained and repeatedly struck.
1: What have we learned over the course of this inquest that we didn't know before? Because as I said, his family has been searching for answers since this man's death.
2: Yeah, a lot. Matt, I've been covering this case since the week Solomon died. And and over these past seven years, we've asked for and been denied repeatedly video footage of just what happened inside that hallway as Solomon was being transferred to his cell. So that video was finally made public at the inquest, and for the first time you can see some of the force that was used by guards that day. We've also seen another video taken by a guard who was so concerned about Solomon's condition that in the days before his death, he actually broke protocol and filmed Solomon on his cell phone In the hope of getting him help. And in that video, you see just what sort of state Solomon was in when he was inside, you know, really struggling, really unwell. But you also see the kindness of this guard and how he spoke to Solomon and won his trust. Another thing we're hearing is, you know, Solomon was in the throes of a psychiatric emergency and should have been at the hospital. And we've also heard about tensions inside the jail that day that I alluded to earlier. Um, As well as the difficulties of delivering health care inside a jail setting, you know, staffing issues and some of the challenges that come with taking an inmate to the ER.
1: What's happened to the guards who were involved in Solomon Fakiri's death?
2: We know two managers were fired after Solomon died. And as far as we know, they were never hired back. Um, During our, our investigation at the Fifth Estate, we reported that another 13 correctional staff were also suspended But we don't know how long those suspensions lasted or whether they were paid or unpaid. And we have previously asked Ontario's Ministry of Corrections, now the Ministry of the Solicitor General, about those suspensions, but they won't comment on disciplinary actions, saying human resource matters are confidential.
1: You've spoken to members of the Fikiri family, as I have over the years, Um, and they are the ones who have been driving this forward. How are they doing now?
2: I have. And, you know, what's been really remarkable to watch over the years is the way Yusuf Fakiri, Solomon's older brother, has really channeled his grief into action to shine a light on this story and to seek out answers as to just what happened to Sali, as he called them. So in terms of the inquest, the family does have what's known as standing, meaning that they can directly question witnesses if they choose. But so far, they tell me they're letting the inquest play out, you know, really trusting the process and allowing the evidence to speak for itself. Now, they did deliver a statement at the inquest on Friday, which was read aloud to jurors and gave them a chance to hear not only about how Solomon died, but, you know, how he lived and what his loss has meant to the family. So it says in part, quote, for the last seven years, my family and I have had a deep, painful hole right in the center of our lives. Solomon was an anchor for us that was taken away and left us adrift. His death has left us empty. And the statement ends by calling for truth to come to light and for the jury to come up with recommendations to prevent deaths like Solomon's from happening again.
1: Shanifa, thank you very much for this. Thank you, Matt. Shanifa Nasser is a reporter with CBC Toronto covering the inquest into Solomon Fakiri's death.
2: Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Café with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The case of Solomon Fikiri is raising significant questions about the way that people with mental illness are treated inside the correctional system in this country. Michael Spratt is a criminal lawyer, partner at AGP Law in Ottawa, and host of the legal podcast, The Docket. Michael, good morning. Good morning. When he died, Solomon Fikiri was in remand custody. What is that? It's hard to actually describe
0: the depths of the deplorable conditions that we have in Ontario for remand. These are individuals who are presumed innocent, who are kept in custody without programming, uh, without counseling, uh, largely without treatment, often three to a cell, denied family visits. It is some of the worst, most heartbreaking conditions you could imagine.
1: And as you said, presumed innocent.
0: That's right. And I mean, it's not a secret how bad the conditions are. We've seen reports in the media of women giving birth in their cells, of uh, triple bunking, of moldy food, of, uh, of feces and blood-soaked uh, linens. Mm. Uh, the conditions are stomach-turning. And I guess the real tragedy is that the government is fully aware of those conditions and courts have ruled it's a deliberate policy
1: choice. These are people who are waiting for their court date, right?
0: that's right these are people who have not been found guilty of anything Um, often the individuals in remand are some of the most marginalized and vulnerable people. People with mental health issues, people suffering in poverty, unhoused individuals, people with addiction issues. You know, you don't find many bankers and uh, Bay Street uh, professionals in remand. Usually these are individuals who are already in a very bad place.
1: Solomon Fakiri was awaiting transfer to a hospital for acute psychiatric care. What, what kind of mental health care... You've kind of hinted at this. Would people be entitled to when they're in remand?
0: Almost nothing. Um, sometimes there can be uh, visits from, uh, from some psychiatrists or psychologists in jail. But quite often the solution to uh, helping people with mental health issues in jail is to put them in isolation, uh, to cut them off even further in a cold, hard cell one of the most frustrating things as a lawyer is seeing my clients who want help, uh, whose mental health has has largely driven, um, you know, their past record or maybe the current allegations, and they want help but they can't get help, and I can't get them help either.
1: For for people who are in that circumstance, I mean, what is the alternative? Because and it's one is is to get them into uh, a mental health facility, but if you are being held in remand, what's the alternative? Because the, the the facility isn't a mental health facility. It isn't a mental health hospital.
0: Yeah, I mean, we send people to jail um, when they're convicted. Um as punishment, not for punishment. And these are individuals who haven't been convicted of anything. But the solution is to make sure that we have places in hospitals for individuals who are suffering from acute mental health issues. We have individuals now who have court-ordered assessments uh, at hospitals, but they can't go. They're delayed and they're kept in jail because there, there simply isn't room in some of our healthcare institutions. And one of the other solutions is to rethink how we deal with these individuals on remand. It seems bonkers to me that we would have someone with a mental health issue, um, say we need to keep them in custody to protect the public, and then, you know, release them without treatment at some time later. Um, Jails and, and correctional facilities... If, at the last resort, we need to keep someone there, that should be the easiest place to get help and treatment, not the hardest.
1: How difficult of a situation can the guards be placed in at times? Because one of the things we heard, we just heard this from Shanifa, is that guards were filming Solomon Fakiri in his cell in the days leading up to his death. And the suggestion was that this was an effort to show officials that he needed more help.
0: Yeah, and, and I'll be clear, there are... Good jail guards. There are good people who work in our jails. One of the reasons that um, Adam Capay, the young man in northern Ontario who spent, you know, uh, years
1: in solitary confinement. 1,500 days.
0: That's right. Um, with mental health issues in conditions that were literally torturous, the one reason why why we found out about that case is because a jail guard let uh, the the human rights commissioner know when she was there, um, and you know was a whistleblower. So there are good people that work in our jails, um, but our jail guards aren't trained to be mental health uh, facilitators. They're not trained to be doctors, and despite the fact there are good uh good guards this they are cogs it is they live in a culture um that is punitive and where conduct like we saw in soli's case um is hardly punished if you're a construction worker and you break the rules and someone dies usually you are charged with something um if you if someone dies in your care when you're breaking the rules at your hands there should be consequences mm-hmm. beyond a manager being fired and i think that that's what we need to look at i want to
1: go i want to go back to the solitary confinement thing in a moment but just because of the, you raised the charges the opp looked into this case the ontario provincial police and didn't lay charges against the guards that were involved in the death of solomon fakiri because there wasn't a reasonable prospect of a conviction what do you make of that
0: it seems that there 's a sliding scale of what a reasonable prospect of conviction means. Uh, it's different, I would guess, for you or me. does that what, what, is. What,
1: is, what does that mean? I mean the crown is the one that determines this, right
0: well, the OPP determine whether there's a reasonable prospect of conviction before they lay charges. Okay. There's there's a separation there. And sometimes they get input from the Crown. But it often seems when it comes to police, when it comes to politicians, when it comes to people in position of power, that w- the standard of a reasonable prospect of conviction may be lower in those cases. In this case, you had a number of individuals who are breaking the rules in position of power and, you know, uh, walked into a cell, delivered violence on an individual who died. Um, I think that there may only be not a reasonable prospect of conviction in a case like that if you don't try for a conviction.
1: Solomon Fakiri, as you mentioned, was in solitary confinement um, when he died. The federal government has banned that practice in federal prisons, but to your point, Adam Capet was held uh, in northern Ontario in solitary confinement for something like 1,500 days. A minister, The minister who was responsible for, um, for I believe, uh, provincial jails at the time knew about this and met him, right? He'd spoke with him. What do we know about the rules that govern solitary confinement in provincial jails across this country?
0: So... I mean, there are some rules the minister needs to be notified. There are purportedly some standards. But here's the thing about the rules. They only matter if they're applied. I mean, there's also rules that you shouldn't beat an inmate to death. But the thing about solitary confinement is that it's not just being alone, which, you know, to you or me on a normal day, I, I would relish the chance to be alone alone. Solitary confinement in jail is one of the most punitive, devastating consequences that an inmate can suffer. Alone in a cell with no contact, with no family visits, with no yard, sometimes with no access to a shower, and everything taken away from you. Um, So nothing. You have absolutely nothing in the cell with you. And for someone with a mental health issue, you know, to cut them off from family, to cut them off from community supports and to leave them alone um, is a punishment that is unimaginable.
1: Just finally, this inquest is going to deliver recommendations on how to avoid a repeat of what happened to Solomon Fakiri. And there have been a number of other cases of people dying in custody, other inquiries, other campaigns by family members who have looked for answers. Based on what you know, how likely is it that those recommendations will actually end up leading to real change and not just get dusty on a shelf somewhere?
0: I'm not optimistic um, because... It's not like we don't know that these problems exist. It's not like this is going to be a revelatory moment for the government. Um, this is a government who the, uh, the Superior Court in Toronto found um, knew about conditions like this, but we're ignoring them for financial reasons. But
1: your point was we also need to rethink more broadly as a society. We need to rethink a few things, including that idea of, of remand custody, who we're holding and, and for how long and why.
0: I think we do, but this government has taken a step back. We used to have community councils for each jail with members of the public and professionals who could have access to the jail to, to, to shine a spotlight, to show some sunlight in that institution, to expose problems like this so that, so that they could be corrected before there was, you know, the ultimate tragedy. But those councils and those organizations have been disbanded by the government. So it seems like we're walking back. Mm. And I mean, hopefully, um, with, with, you know, this, terrible, terrible tragedy and inquest, maybe we can take some steps forward again.
1: Michael, thank you very much.
0: No problem. Anytime.
1: Michael Spratt, criminal lawyer, partner at HEP Law in Ottawa, and host of the legal podcast, The Docket. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca
0: slash podcasts.